listening to right where you are sitting now. Hi, welcome to episode 24 of Right Where You're Sitting Now. Uh, my name's Ken Eakins. Uh, this is the show for the website sittingnow.co.uk. That's S-I-T-T-I-N-G-N-O-W.co.uk. In case you're new. <laughs> uh, I'm on my own again in the intro. Um, Mort's going to be back next week, uh, which is going to be cool. Looking forward to getting back to back to normal. Um, there's also no weekly weird news again this week. Claire's been really busy, although she did do a cool interview uh, for the site. If you go and check out sittingnow.co.uk you'll see that she's interviewed uh, Wes Borland but don't panic it's not about Limp Bizkit thankfully I'm not a huge fan of them to be honest with you <laughs> the website's getting there we've still got an extra big thing secret thing to stick on the website which we haven't uh, you know we can't discuss yet for, for actually fairly good reasons um, but that'll be going up fairly soon uh, we're still sorting out some of the HTML things it's a mystery to us what's happened but uh, expect that to be sorted fairly shortly but it is looking cool so we'll go and check it out uh, sittingnow.co.uk I mean, I'm just going to plug that this episode anyway um, if you go to the forum and start talking to each other that would be appreciated <laughs> well, we've, uh, we've start, we're just going to start talking and you guys can join in I think that's going to be the best way to do this but yeah do come along and check it out and join in um, we'd really like to know who our listeners are so yeah <laughs> that'd be quite cool I know a lot of you like to email me I say this all the time but uh, I guess that's more personal I suppose but uh, you know it's, a community is always good the competition we set last week no one's actually got the, the answer yet so i'm going to run it for one more week and i'll restate the question and if you don't get it, it admittedly it is quite hard and obscure but i will throw a clue in this time we've actually mentioned it in a show before um uh, i won't tell you which one but i'll tell you it's in, within the first five shows of sitting now if you've got the patience to sit back through all of those episodes you'll find the answer it's in there somewhere and you do stand to win a maybe logic DVD uh, from from the, the kind of people at Deep Leaf Productions who made the made the film and it's an amazing film so it's well worth well worth doing. So uh, yeah, the the uh, competition question was uh, obviously our site is called Right Where You Are Sitting Now and the show obviously, uh, which is Robert Anton Wilson book. He's best in my opinion. The question is who originally used the title Right Where You Are Sitting Now and allowed Robert Anton Wilson to use it. Um, I'll give you another clue it was someone he was quite close to who's quite famous as well so there's a couple of clues there and if you don't get it by the end of this week I'll just change the question <laughs> uh, we've also got a Phantomus DVD to give away uh, which we'll do probably the week after next if this competition is still running so this is going to be kind of a regular thing it's quite fun I quite enjoy it but uh, yeah anyway this week's guest is uh, Andrea Vitmus, uh, whose name I can never get right He's been a practicing magician for over 15 years in multiple systems. He holds the highest initiatory rank in Haitian voodoo, which is really cool. That of the Hongun Azogui, whose name I'm sure I've really badly mispronounced that. Uh, he's initiate of the Roots Without End Society, initiatory son of Mambo Racine Sansbu, which again I've probably mis- <laughs> said wrong. He has taught metaphysical classes at the at Alchemy Arts in Chicago for the last six years. He's had several store appearances throughout the Midwest and has taught at conventions, including Eon Fest, Ancient Ways, Real Witches Ball, Convocation, and The Serious Rising. And of course, uh, Daddy Tank's MySpace Heroes will also be there. It's another great one. I've just checked it out. It's cool. Uh, so we'll, we'll see you after all of this great stuff.
Andrea Vitimus, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot for coming on. I really appreciate you uh, giving us some of your time. You're welcome. Thank you for having me today. I was wondering, just for the listeners, could you uh, give us a, a brief biog of yourself? Absolutely. I've been doing magic for about 15 years, maybe a little more if you count psychology. Um, I have a degree in psychology, uh, and I started off in magic being a skeptic. I didn't believe in this stuff. I tried not to believe in it. My family actually does believe in it. I was kind of the black sheep of the family. I, um, I'm a member of the Illuminates of Sanateros, uh, the American section, the North American section. Uh, I'm initiated in Haitian voodoo and a Yusui Reiki master and a Karuna Reiki master, as well as an advanced Tai Chi practitioner. And I just recently completed my hypnosis training to be a licensed hypnotherapist as well. Wow. So do you find all these different practices kind of um, uh, come under the banner of, of kind of chaos magic and use them always sort of a... Well, yeah, they certainly look at magic in different ways, very radically different ways. So that allows me to kind of see magic from different angles for everything I do, which is exactly why I did a lot of it. So that way I could see magic from different angles. Hmm. And I could see how magic can work from different angles, from different perspectives, and why it works from that perspective. Excellent. Okay, I guess um, what I'd really like to talk first with you about is um, chaos magic itself. I mean, we've never really covered it properly on the show. Um, I was going to, I guess, the first place to start would be to look at the kind of the history and development of the art. Where did it come from and why did it happen, almost? (laughs) Well, chaos magic has an interesting history. And like all mythological histories, take this with a grain of salt. (laughs) But back in the day, Peter Carroll and a few others uh, saw an advertisement to restart the AA, which is Alistair Crowley's Order of Experienced Magicians, which the OTO is more of a training order. (laughs) The AA, you were expected to know magic and know how to do magic. Well, that turned out to be bunk. But the people there said, hey, we're here, so let's talk. And they got talking and realized, you know, we can't really agree on much because everyone has to be right. So they kept talking and they came to a conclusion, which is one of the tenets of uh, chaos magic, basically, that there may not be an ultimate truth or that nothing is true and everything is permitted is another way to say it. Because once they made that conclusion that everyone's magic couldn't work unless the universe didn't care about the truth involved in any particular system, hmm. they were then able to cross-communicate and start working outside of any one system. And they, Peter Carroll actually coined the term chaos magic for what they were doing. Um, nowadays, people have thrown around the terms experimental magic, postmodern magic. These are all kind of the same kind of current. Hmm. Um, that it, the the lack of dogmatic truth and accepting the fact that there may not be a truth, and then working from that assumption uh, and playing and experimenting with the magic as much as possible. So Peter Carroll then goes off with a few others and starts the Illuminance of Thanateros. Hmm. And that was the first, he put an advertisement, I forgot the newspaper, but it, there was a newspaper in Britain that the occultists actually look at, and <laughs> uh, they, it took off. And 
in England and in Germany, where some of the members are from. Then it kind of spreads to the rest of the world through the vehicle of the Illuminates of Thanateros in each different country. Um, and by now, you're at the point that the um, Illuminates of Thanateros have been around, so you have lots of splinter groups doing chaos magic that have splintered off from the original current and uh, lots of authors using the techniques and the ideas of chaos magic in their works. Um, and it basically, you have most, even your average Wiccan at this point has some understanding of chaos magic theory, even though they don't call it that because they say, Hey, at least here in, here in America, they say, Hey, you know what? It's not so important that we get the words exactly right, that our intent is important, which is the direct correlation of what Peter Carroll and the IoT were saying 20 years ago. So Yeah, so it's kind of like a, an open source magic, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. That's one way to look at it, yeah. Okay, cool. So, I mean, uh, how does it vary from, say, like the more traditional Western esoteric, kind of traditional, I guess, mag magical groups like the Golden Dawn system or... The ATA yeah. systems. I mean, is, is there quite a lot of variation? Yes, because there may not be an ultimate truth. See, ultimately, there is no system of magic that is chaos magic. There is no one idea that fits within chaos magic. There's an attitude that lets people experiment and play with the universe, ignoring all dogma or truth. So that frees a chaos magician to work with any system from the Golden Dawn, to Voodoo, to Egyptian, to Reiki, to any New Age system, because there may not be an ultimate truth means you are free to experiment with anything and see if it works or not. Yeah, that's interesting. So, I mean, um, socially, do you, uh, how do you kind of the traditional, I guess, magicians tend to uh, view chaos magic? Do they see it as a... Uh, and I, I know some of the kind of more old school, you could say, <laughs> magicians that I've met and spoken to about chaos magic. Some of them agree with it completely, and others find it offensive. Almost, it's kind of strange. Well, I think yeah, it, it, it's almost a heresy for some of their stuff, mm. uh, especially from some of the more strict Golden Dawn, strict Western ceremonial, any strict ceremonial fundamentalists will look at chaos magic and go, "This is heresy," almost. But if they're right, what chaos magicians do shouldn't work, and it does. Um, which means something's going on here, because if we're not exactly following the directions, and it still works, what's going on here? Somebody, if we don't accept that we're right, and we just accept there may not be a truth, the results kind of are the proof of where the kind of results come in is kind of proof of the fact that something is going on here that violates those rules and it's okay the universe is okay with it now the golden dawn is particularly uh kind of interesting because if you study the history of the golden dawn they had to create a lot to fill in the blanks mm. so this what chaos magic is doing is nothing new it's it's something that every cultural system of magic has done um just chaos magic openly does it and does it a little bit faster than the kind of adaptation that goes on in most other systems yeah okay interesting i mean you've just released a book which is a, a great sort of handbook to uh, would you say it's for the beginner up to the uh, the expert practitioner 
Yeah, it's got something for everyone. I mean, in the beginning, we're starting off kind of just sitting down, relaxing, which I don't know uh, in Britain if you guys have quite, in the UK, if you guys have quite the same problem that we do. But in America, everyone is really kind of overworked. And uh, we kind of work like 50 to 55 hours, and it's tough to get out of that work mindset. So that's where I start at. Hmm. Uh, How do you separate yourself from work? or from your obligations to get that 30 minutes yeah. uh, a day to just kind of relax and breathe. Um, and then I keep going from there, building upon that first step of just making the choice to step away from work into how to actually relax, what different postures, kind of how they affect your body, hmm. the real basic kind of stuff that you have to do to kind of figure out and get in tune with your body and how your body reacts to your mind and vice versa. Hmm. And then later on, towards the end of the book, we're doing stuff like rewriting the story of our lives in ways to almost, in a way, create a magical life that has results based on the story, have to have results based on just the story that you are compelling yourself to follow in your life without any magic rituals at all, um, which is very analogous to you, but slightly different than being in touch with the Holy Guardian Angel. Yeah. Uh, because I'm not exactly saying there's this self that's higher than you that is telling you what to do, but I am allowing you to exist within a story that has to produce certain results at certain times. Mm. And that's the end of the book, which is the most advanced stuff yes. with astral magic in between there, evocation, invocation, all the traditional forms of magic from the start of just being able to separate yourself out from work to the end of sculpting and creating your life as you will. Yeah. I mean, that's one thing I seem to, I mean, from reading like Grant Morrison, he's a, was kind of quite profoundly affected by, uh, I think, Peter Carroll and, and uh, the kind of uh, early chaos magic work. I mean, he seems to see chaos magic as kind of a way of hacking your own reality. And uh, I don't know, I seem to believe, you know, I think magic in general really does that. But, I mean, would you agree that chaos magic maybe is more bent towards hacking, your, you know, your own reality, as it were? Well, certainly. I mean, I, I do kind of think that all magic is like hacking your own reality together as well, uh, not just chaos magic, because in, in the end, but chaos magic has the double difficulty, because we acknowledge there might be something to what most systems have to say, and maybe they don't work for everyone, but we try to experiment with it. From my own personal practice, I know that I can't do a working for something that I'm not prepared to receive, hmm. and what that means is I can get the luck to fall in my way, but if I ask for a new lover and I'm not emotionally open, that I'm wasting my time asking for a new lover, which means I have to go in and change things inside my own mind to be open to having a new lover, then do the spell to, uh, or ritual or procedure to have the new lover come to me and then get out of my house and do things in the physical world to actually have that new lover manifest because it doesn't do any good if I'm sitting in my house asking for a new lover. Mm. Unless I have a lot of money and I can do mail-order brides, but that's a totally different thing. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I guess uh, what we should do now, really, I mean, uh, you've 
uh, we should actually probably mention your book first. Actually, <laughs> the actual title might be helpful. Yeah, yeah. It's called uh, "Hands On Chaos Magic," and it's uh, to me actually as someone that you know is reading a lot of kind of basic stuff. It kind of reminds me in a way of Donald Craig's modern magic, uh, which is more aimed at kind of traditional, I guess, Western traditions. It's you know a similar kind of approach almost. It takes you from beginning to end, and I guess I kind of quite well not to end. You know what I mean? <laughs> but um, I guess what I'd like to do is maybe go through some of the. Uh, the juicier looking uh, chapters in the book with you. <laughs> the juicier looking chapters, all right. <laughs> well, I guess we should start at the beginning. I mean, what, the first thing that um, seemed pretty interesting to me was the throwing salt over your own shoulder game. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. The which shoulder game? The throwing the salt. salt game. Yeah. Oh, that comes. that's actually a traditional hoodoo technique, which is a African-American, uh, Southern American technique that you actually, and the way I explain it is a little different uh, than, than it's explained in hoodoo, but you can actually push the negativity uh, around you into the salt. It's more like the salt will take that negativity. And when you throw it behind you and walk away, you're leaving the negativity behind. Yeah. Um, now, if you do that, I gave one example, but if you do that and take a bunch of salt and put all the negativity in it, you could give it to a tree, or you could throw it in the crossroads in traditional hoodoo. And I just kind of give the little way of when you get out of work, getting rid of that negativity from that day and just leaving it outside work, but it's in the salt instead of inside you and then walking on. Now, interesting enough, now from a hoodoo point of view, you're taking kind of bad spirits away from you. You know, from an NLP point of view, from a psychological point of view, this is a state interrupt. And from an energy point of view, you're actually pushing that the salt has the energy properties which absorb negativity in most books on herbal magic. So you're pushing negative energies from your body into the salt and then dropping them off. So you can explain it a lot of different ways. Yeah, it's almost like, a mild purification ritual or something in some ways yeah it's a real a real fast purification ritual <laughs> kind of like here's the salt in the hand get rid of it uh, but actually a lot of things in magic can be that simple if done repetitively with intention yeah it's kind of like almost uh, preparing yourself to be magical I suppose in some ways just, the small steps like baby steps first and then uh, working your way up to the more I guess intense rituals yeah, I mean, like another example that I give is is breathing. I'm a big proponent of breathing. With the amount of Tai Chi I do, we, we practice breathing all the time. Mm. Do you know that if you breathe, that you usually only breathe for two seconds in and out? Oh, really? Mm. And that if you're stressed, you breathe for less. Now, what happens if you're doing that? is that your body starts building up stress hormones because it's not getting enough oxygen. Hmm. In which case, then you start having problems of anxiety, high blood pressure, all those kind of health issues that over time come from that. Now, from a Tai Chi point of view, they'll point out that that's from, that starts from your breathing. So merely spending 30 minutes or even 15 minutes of just concentrating on breathing for five seconds in and out or more than five seconds will solve a lot of those problems. That's a very simple, simple thing. But yet in yoga, in Tai Chi and Qigong, they all stress this very, very simple thing that when it comes down to health benefits, benefits are huge. 
And a lot of magic starts off with these simple things that people just kind of take for granted, but they make a huge difference. Hmm. Um, because if I breathe like that way for five minutes, even in and out, if I go breathe in the shower as deeply as I can, I'll just feel my whole body kind of get tension and free. And then that's the point at which you can sit down to think about what do I want in my life or what do I want to do as far as magic today? Because uh, you've gotten rid of the stress just like that. Hmm. Yeah, it almost sounds a little bit like um, a kind of a bit like pranayama, you know, uh, which Cody was really into, wasn't he? Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, excellent. So, I mean, the, the next thing you really sort of go on to look at in the book is the kind of, uh, I guess, things like standing positions and you know, actual positions to hold your body in. Could you talk a bit about the, the that kind of next step? Yeah, I mean, from both uh, cognitive science and NLP, we know that certain body positions can trigger certain emotions or states of mind. What you're trying to do there is obviously I can't tell you what those standing positions are because your mind should work differently than mine. Mm. So I'm basically telling people to kind of experiment and see what each body position when they put themselves in and they're standing actually does to their state of mind. Once, they're, once they get rid of the stress and they relax, what happens when they put themselves in a certain body position? Now, like, obviously certain positions for me, like if I was in a, like, raised fist stance, you know, in a martial stance, it's very, to me, a very martial type of energy that I would be triggering in myself. Um, other positions might be, you know, more relaxing. If I'm standing, leaning against the wall, well, most people would consider that a kind of relaxed standing stance. You know, and if I'm standing in a formal uh, Qigong stance, I might get into a certain state of mind to move the energy around in my body. Mm. So what I was trying to do there is get people to actually start playing around with when they're standing or laying or sitting in a different position, what happens, what's going on inside their mind? Uh, because it could be that some positions trigger certain emotional responses that we can use in our magic then. Yeah. I think one of the, the methods you used to kind of, uh, dis to kind of discover your own, you know, at least to experiment with body positions is the uh, random dance uh, technique. Yeah, that's actually from... Um, Wilson's uh, chaos ritual. It's a phenomenal technique um, that you just kind of move around, not with a beat, to kind of to get kind of stuck in mm. a position that has a, a, a impact on you in some way. And from that, you can kind of uh, that could become one of the positions you were talking about earlier on. Yeah, that could be one of the positions that you're using in ritual later. Uh, you know, it could be more than a position; it could be a gesture. I mean, obviously, here in, in, in the States, we have a certain gesture with our middle finger, which means something, <laughs> you know. Everyone knows what that means here. Um, but it could be a number of different gestures where it triggers certain movements, trigger certain things in your mind. Now, certainly, if you're studying a particular system, such as Tai Chi or Qigong or any of the martial arts systems, they certainly... They condition you that certain steps and certain motions and certain postures have this effect on your body. Mm. And sometimes they actually do have that effect. Um, but I'm encouraging the readers to go and try it out. Uh, and the random dance is one way that you can kind of discover new postures, new kind of body sensations that happen when you start moving around and uh, 
seeing what happens. Yeah, I think another uh, the next sort of section you really go on to talk about is uh, it's kind of a a kind of compilation of the senses almost like sight, sound, smell, and touch and taste. Uh, I mean, how do you progress from like you know physical standing kind of techniques to these kind of more sense sense based uh, <laughs> techniques? Well, the phys- the physical standing techniques uh, in NLP, which is neuro linguistical programming, yeah, uh, will activate kinetic um, modalities. Um, so we're doing physical motions to kind of activate kinetic modalities, which is a subtle way to help um, ground our magic into our bodies a little. Because uh, uh, if you remember in the beginning of the book, I said this book was my work of alchemy. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that I had to do was ground my magic out of headspace into my body to make it more effective. Hmm. I had to figure out how to essentially add kinetic components to my rituals to make them more effective because I was too in headspace. So then once I get through the body part of it, yes, then I go into headspace, which the body, all the body gestures were were training kinetic memory. And of course, in most occult books, then you, you visualize things, mm. you know, but from NLP and cognitive science, we know only 60% of the people have a, as their primary way of interacting with the world is visual. So that means other people are using, they're feeling the world or hearing the world. And so I take that into account because in my own practice and most people that I've actually talked to, including Donald Michael Craig, is if the more senses you can add to a ritual, the more your mind believes the ritual is happening and is real Mm, as you go into a deep trance state. So all those kind of um, exercises are starting to build up imagination in each of the senses so that way you can believe that the rituals are more real. Because once your mind hits a certain point of that sensory information, it's going to assume that it's real because you're in a deep enough trance state not to argue with yourself whether or not the ritual is real. All those sensory uh, kind of inputs are a way to get are a way to make it more believable for your mind, for your subconscious mind. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember from doing uh, one of the exercises in Craig's book, uh, Donald Craig's book, says, uh, I think it's called the relaxation ritual, which is right at the very beginning. And uh, it's, I found it quite interesting what you're saying about only 60% of people, you know, basing their uh, interpretations of reality almost on visual uh, stimuli. I mean, I find it really, really difficult to visualize things. Um, I'm far more my senses seem to be far more based around sound and kind of yeah like the same feeling emotion i guess so it's good yeah i mean i I was on a another show where this was they could not understand this and i pointed out i've done rituals that involved no visualization at all Hmm. completely sound-based rituals uh you know where i was working with harmonic sound harmonics um and that's perfectly acceptable now usually when you start Working with one, you can kind of lead into the other a little easier. Um, but that's why I try to focus on all the senses. Obviously, I, I don't want people to go around tasting everything. That could be a little dangerous. But uh, as much as possible, I'm trying to build up in those sections kind of the imagination for everyone across all five senses. Now, NLP will kind of mostly 
state that you just kind of want to work with what you got. As magicians, I kind of think, okay, it's probably worthwhile for us to train ourselves to get better in wherever our weaknesses are as far as sensory information. And that's what that's about. So that way it becomes more real for you. Okay, cool. I mean, one thing I've—I mean, you can tell this just from looking through the contents of the book. Uh, there seems to be a lot of games in in the uh, in the in the text. I mean, could you um, maybe talk about the importance of these games? You know, and maybe they're kind of because they seem to span the whole book rather than just you know one section. Uh, yeah, they, they do, and, and I'll tell you the places that uh, Lou Allen didn't like me putting the game title in there almost everything was called a game at first mm. and this has to do with a certain philosophy about magic um if you're not having fun you probably won't do it mm. so the idea is if you make everything a game when you're trying to learn uh how to do magic you can kind of get into that mindset where it's fun uh because if you kind of get into that mindset where you're you know I don't know if you've ever practiced piano, but I had piano lessons for like 12 years. Mm. And when you're forced to practice something, it's not very fun. You kind of just go over and over oh, and yeah. over. And <laughs> I've over. had that with guitar lessons. Yeah. Like, right, <laughs> every day, you know. But you're unlikely, if something is not fun, to continue. Mm. You, you're, most people, when they're having fun and they're learning, they're learning much more effectively. So the idea there is to kind of look at things as sort of a fun game. You don't need, when you're practicing, you just you need to practice, and I, I recognize that magic is hard work, but you need not approach it from that drudgery type of mindset. Uh, you can approach it from a game point of view, because games are fun. So and one of the exercises that is one of my favorites, you're spinning planets around you, as, as an advanced visualization technique. Well, that's kind of fun to me. Mm. You know, to kind of imagine the sea in every single way and feel the planet going by you over and over. That's kind of fun and interesting. Um, and if you kind of approach, like, the training from that perspective of having fun, once you get past the real basic stuff, it's, uh, it's a lot easier to keep going with it. It's a lot easier to just keep progressing because... It's not drudgery. It's, it's fun. It's a game. Hmm. And when you go with other people, some of the exercises clearly kind of move towards that. They're serious kind of energy exercises and serious stuff, but it kind of moves from that play with your partner on this kind of way, where you're kind of building in the fun into the, the exercise. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's... Um, we've spoken about this on the show before, actually, but I think what's good about your book, and like I keep mentioning it, the Donald Craig book as well, is that... And actually, also, Lon Milo Duquette's a good example of this, is that often these kind of magical texts, especially the older, like the, your Crowleys or your Israel Regardis or, uh, you know, Mathers, these kind of people, a lot of their text is, in some ways, almost unreadable. <laughs> um, you, have yeah, to read, yeah. you have to really kind of, you know, almost to become a magician in this case, you also need to have a, a degree in, you know, the understanding of uh, Greek or, or Hebrew or, you know, it's well, if you, if you're fond of Peter Carroll, you have to have a degree in physics. Mm. <laughs> That's true. So, uh, <laughs> physics and high level mathematics, um, to really kind of understand what he's saying, but for Peter Carroll, that's fun, you know, and for some of the older authors like Alistair Crowley, he got off on that, you know, showing how smart he was. He loved it. Mm. That was fun for him. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it seems... so, I mean, it, it wasn't fun for everyone who tries to read his materials later, <laughs> but he probably would, if he was still alive, say he didn't care because he had fun when he was writing it. Mm. And that seems to be a, a kind of theme with Crowley <laughs> in some ways. Yeah, <laughs> it definitely is a theme. <laughs> Um, I, I, before we kind of move on, I want to kind of talk to you about kind of some of the more uh, recognisable practices in magic, like banishing and uh, invocation, that kind of thing. Before we do, uh, there's a chapter in your book called "I Am." Could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, that, that's that's actually. Uh, I don't think it's a chapter. I think it's an exercise. An exercise, yes. Yeah, it's, yeah. it, it, it's a banishing, and it essentially reasserts that you are in control of your own reality by using the formula of "I am," which is actually the name of God, hmm. except then it's a, initially I pictured it as kind of a left-hand path banishing because you were asserting that you were God, but it also kind of applies the ceremonial uh, magic because it asserts that you are God, which is a component of ceremonial magic once you ascend high enough on the tree of life. And essentially you're standing repeating that mantra that I am and uh, reasserting your uh, essence over the, whatever situation. It's very... Uh, you, I added some solar aspects to it, like imagine that you are the sun, which in planetary magic is obviously the, the sun is the center point. Mm. Um, reasserting that you are the center of your own universe. You are the center of your own reality. Uh, and reasserting that kind of responsibility and that kind of control. Is, what's the uh, the ceremonial garb for a chaos magician? Is it, I assume it's different for every magician, but does it kind of uh, resemble the kind of the gowns we're used to seeing or the robes we're used to seeing with, uh, with say, your more traditional groups like the Golden Dawn or... Well, I certainly have a nice set of black robes. Um, <laughs> but most people I know, it's, it's sky-clad. Right, yeah. That's what I, was, <laughs> I was wondering you if... Know, I, I have a little, like, sarong thing that I wear usually because it's comfortable and it's hard to catch on fire, hmm. which is very important, <laughs> mind you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> very important. Uh, something hard to catch on fire because it's not low enough. Um, a lot of times, though, I, a lot of chaos magicians I know they'll come in once they've been doing it for a while they'll kind of just show up to ritual in street clothes because mm. they don't need the context switch of uh of putting on robes yeah yeah i was gonna say because it's you know yeah go yeah i mean if i'm doing a ritual in a public setting uh in some sort of public venue where i'm doing a public ritual i will always have some sort of robes or ceremonial are because the people watching the ritual need that to be able to get into it mm. to see somebody in robes but a lot of times a lot of chaos traditions I know including myself once we once you've been doing it for a little while you don't need that extra step of getting into robes to get into the state of mind necessary to do magic yeah it's interesting I never really thought of it like that before especially in the public context the idea of uh, I guess robes being a kind of uh a hook for other people's kind of uh, uh, involvement in the ceremony almost. <laughs> That's quite interesting. Right. If they don't believe that the ceremony is going to work, it won't. So you have to pull all the stops out to kind of fit the, con to kind of fit, uh, the context they expect, mm. um, which might not be what you do in private. And a, a lot of magicians would, 
probably agree with that who do any kind of public rituals. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, you, uh, I've been to a couple of ATO Gnostic masses, and in some cases the priestess will be completely sky clad, and then in other, you know, the other cases they won't be. And it always seems to me, in some case, I don't know. It seems that if they're not, <laughs> without trying to sound like a pervert in some ways, but if they're not, it kind of takes you out of the the theatrics of the ritual almost, and you know, it's kind of. Yeah, I mean, we we could have a whole long discussion, probably a whole show on theatrics of ritual, mm. and why if you're doing ritual in public, you need to have those theatrics, and how theatrics and ritual actually contribute to trance states and convincing your mind again that this is going on, um, and getting past that kind of factor of disbelief, so that way your mind thinks. This is happening. That's one of the secrets of ceremonial magic, as far as I'm concerned, actually, is that pomp and circumstance to the point that your mind believes something is going on. Yeah. I mean, that's the same with initiation as well. Um, initiation, at least to me, wouldn't work unless there was this intense theatrics. So. Yeah, that's, yeah. That, I would totally agree with that. Initiation without theatrics would kind of not apply the kind of psychological pressure necessary for someone to be able to reach the realizations that they needed to make. I think that actually that brings me along to another question, really. And with the, um, is it the IOT, isn't it? Yeah, IOT, that's the group, Peter Carroll Chaos Magic Group, isn't it? Or the P- Peter Carroll started Chaos Magic Group, <laughs> I should say. Yeah. Um, is the, I, I assume by its very nature, Chaos Magic doesn't tend to replicate itself very often. So how does how do initiations kind of work, I guess, within a group like the I- IOT? Well, I can't talk about any specifics. No, no, that's right. <laughs> you have to join. <laughs> yeah. But I would pretty much say that everything is different for every person. <laughs> and that's pretty much what I've always seen. So everything is different for every person. So there's not a set a set way. It's what the people need at that point. All right. So the actual initiation would be more tailored towards the individual or... Uh, I'm not going to say that's always the case, but uh, I will say that when I've been involved, you know, and without going into any specifics at all, when I've been involved, it it, it is very much like that. Oh, interesting. Okay, so I I think the other things that really kind of interest me with the uh, the kind of the uh the contrast and compare aspects almost of chaos magic versus kind of um more traditional uh western esoteric traditions and so how would a chaos magic uh banishing vary from say an ato based banishing or that kind of thing well one of my favorite banishings is to uh take a dump (laughs) now 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 that sounds funny but when you think about it you are expelling waste from your body and if you expel waste from your body with intention and while going into a trance state, you can also expel all the negative stuff out of your body at the same time because energy will follow your intention. Now, it's, it's not as crazy as it sounds. I mean, yes, it's crazy, but not that crazy when put in that context. Now, an OTO banishing, you know, lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram follows a certain formula that has to be followed each time. Um, and that formula uh, is set. This is pretty much where a chaos magician would play around with that formula or do some other stuff or try stuff like I just described because uh, we're not tied to any one set way of doing things. We're, we're kind of playing around until we find something that works and then we kind of tweak it out. 
I mean, one that looked kind of interesting to me as well was the spiral sword play banishing. That was one of my favorite banishings, actually, uh, because it really kind of it, it incorporates. You could add some incense to that, and then it would encompass all of the senses. Where you have the sound of the sword, you have the visualization of kind of the black tentacles, the negativity coming kind of around you. You have the tactile motion of the spiral sword going upwards and then cutting away things in the spiral and then coming down with it. Um, it also kind of belays the fact that I've been doing martial arts a little while because I would do something like that and think that it was a cool banishing to do. Yeah. It also, it also if you watch like a lot of anime, they will do things similar in animes as well. That's not where it comes from, but I could see the similarities where they would kind of spiral up to generate energy. Yeah, yeah. From the ground. Yeah, and they have those crazy lines that come up behind them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so, I mean, an invocation is obviously um, something that must be fairly different, I guess, from the traditional groups because obviously you have the kind of, I guess, traditional archetypes in invocations with like the ATO or Golden Dawn or these kind of groups. They tend to, uh, you know, invoke various kind of god forms almost. And so the chaos magicians the chaos magic rubber stuff i've seen over the uh over the years always seems to be kind of more um what's the word kind of more kind of uh pop culture almost in some cases or you know computer game based well, or you know, that kind of thing it's it's something that we can do see again we we i've invoked so many god forms you know it, it, it's i can't even count i mean uh, so obviously i can do the god forms just like they would. But I can add the extra step to kind of do some pop culture stuff um, and see what happens. Hmm. So, I mean, could you give us some examples of uh, some cases, I guess, <laughs> in some cases? Of traditional god forms that I wrote? And, or, uh, uh, or, less <laughs> or both? I, I guess both, actually, well, yeah. Maybe kind of contrast and compare the experiences a little bit because I've always been interested. Well, certainly, in... you know, certainly I, I get possessed um you know i went down to haiti and got initiated and got got i get possessed pretty easily when i'm doing voodoo rituals mm. but i've done raw i've done you know various fae like things that i work with um dragons you know all the kind of mythical creatures and then lots of lots and lots and lots of i've been possessed by goetic demons before which is always kind of entertaining for everyone to watch <laughs> um but then you can also you can also kind of call down stuff like you know i once did a class on invocation and somebody invoked donald trump which by the way was awesome he had great advice yeah I imagine. like that was just an awesome like I, and he was an asshole too just like he was on the show um <laughs> And uh, you cannot, like, uh, one of the examples, I don't exactly give the ritual to invoke Lord Voldemort, but I've certainly done it. <laughs> um, I know someone else who invoked a serial killer for certain purposes. You know, I've invoked various angels with anime, positive forces kind of thing. So invoked a uh, serial killer? Yeah, he, I don't know what he was trying to do with that. He didn't exactly tell me, but I can imagine... <laughs> getting some advice practical <laughs> advice maybe <laughs> maybe uh but i mean obviously evocations obviously got to be pretty similar to the the question of invocation and the differences i mean in the book uh, an example you give is uh, an evocation of mr spock from star trek and yes uh, i mean yeah 
which, uh, you know, we were playing around, and that proved out to be a very effective ritual that mm. I've repeated, especially like, especially like in those cases where something happens, and we all have stuff that happens, and we get triggered and kind of get down on ourselves or get upset, and, you know, to hear in the back of your mind that this is not logical, you know, at that right moment is awesome. I mean, highly, highly effective uh, uh, working that we just took kind of as a see what happens here, which is kind of the beauty of chaos magic. I mean, it kind of comes down to a difference in philosophy with chaos magic and kind of more ceremonial magic. With chaos magic kind of uh, looking at, and I think you see that in what I'm, actually writing about invocation and evocation that I essentially say one is just invoking a state and one is evoking a state. Mm. Uh, and that state could be a personality. Uh, it's not really that, it doesn't matter that it's personality, it could be a perceived personality. Like, I don't know that that person who invoked Donald Trump invoked Donald Trump, but he certainly invoked something or she invoked so, something that was uh they believed was Donald Trump. It's always, I've always but, found it quite fascinating, this idea of kind of almost moving away from the, the sort of uh, traditional archetypes that you always see generally in, I guess, quote-unquote regular uh, magic. And it's quite interesting that it kind of opens up this flexibility to create your own archetypes almost. Yeah, I mean, if we're going to argue a Jungian point of view, certainly these type of modern archetypes are like Donald Trump is an archetype of something that's older or recasting of an archetype that is older um, from a Jungian point of view. You know, from an information point of view, we're just bringing to the forefront a set of characteristics we associate with uh, that word, which is a symbol. Donald Trump is a symbol. Hmm. We're essentially, it's an intelligent symbol with a personality, but it's from an information point of view, it's a symbol with a set of attributes that we're pulling to our conscious mind. Yeah. Um, and you can make a similar argument for most traditional God forms that you, uh, it's a symbol with a set of attributes that you're pulling to your conscious mind. Now, these things could exist outside of our minds, um, but they might not. And since the chaos magician is free from the dogma of truth, it doesn't matter because we can just try it and see what happens. Yeah. I guess kind of more what I meant in a way was... Uh, with traditional magic, you're kind of almost forced to uh, uh, believe that these these uh, god forms, in some cases, are archetypes. You know, they, you might not so, uh, identify with them in any way. Whereas chaos magic gives you the option to insert your own archetypes, as it were. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, although you know, depending on which ceremonial magician you're talking to, they'll either believe that they're ob they're objective realities or they're archetypes. Hmm. Um, like Juan Milo Decat, he'll say these, like the Goetia demons are just inside the mind. Yeah, yeah. But there's a lot, many, many, many ceremonial magicians who will not agree with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. This is the, one of the great arguments of uh, magic in some ways that you always see, especially on, I don't know why, but especially on internet forums is the uh, uh, internal versus supernatural argument. Is this stuff internal or is it you know, some outside yeah, force? Yeah, and I almost think that that argument is kind of, I don't know, kind of passe in a way. It's been going on for a while. Problem, <laughs> what? It's been going on for a long time. Well, it doesn't matter either. Yeah. It only matters for philosophers. It doesn't matter for people actually doing the magic. Mm. 
I mean, we could sit here and argue that point for days and days and days, and neither of us would agree that the other was right if we took opposing positions. Because mm, yeah. we would have good arguments either side. Well, I think one of the beautiful things about chaos magic in general and kind of postmodern magic and, and all of the kind of currents like that is, well, today I'm going to believe that spirits are adaptive, and tomorrow, because it's more helpful, I'm going to believe that they're inside my head. Yeah, yeah, that's good. The kind of flexibility you, you get there. One of the things I wanted to look at really was uh, something we've never ever really covered on on the show before, which is kind of astral work. Something that really interests me. I mean, there seems to be a, uh, quite a few variations on this. I was wondering if you could maybe discuss your kind of take on astral uh, work in in your book. Well, in the book, I take a very con- <laughs> uh, here's a odd statement you'll hear. I take a very conservative take on astral work that isn't quite as outlandish as a lot of the takes on uh, astral stuff. Hmm. Now, I I will first paraphrase this by, I will give a warning to all the listeners and just say, I've gotten more fucked up by doing astral work and working with some Pratter human intelligences than I have any sort of book type of magic. Hmm. Uh, I just give that warning because I know it's, it's like fun to go out once you get the skills down to kind of go out and venture. But I kind of advise against that in my book. I actually kind of recommend building your own kind of little astral home hmm. to go to and kind of practice things out until you're building up your skills. It's like your astral temple you refer to it as, don't you, I think? Yeah, and that's the kind of traditional way. I could have easily said it, your, your astral home on the prairie if I wanted to be <laughs> folksy. But... Um, you're really kind of building, depending on your take of the astral world, there's, there's one of two things going on. Either it's just all straight in your head, which, you know, there's some good arguments for that. Um, and there's some arguments that I can make against that, actually. Um, but you're building a kind of space in the etheric waves, which could, again, just be in your head, to kind of give you space to kind of practice all the other techniques in the book in this astral space um from there you know we're kind of doing invocations and evocations without any ritual tools without anything but using your mind because you've constructed mental tools to be able to do every single thing um and obviously that requires this is why it comes near the end of the book because it requires you to be able to visualize and sense and use all five of your senses to make yourself believe that and the kind of mental discipline to be able to keep going with it, to keep with the, uh, the scene that you're working with. Mm. Now I I essentially start out with a, a technique that Dave Lee, um, I learned from Dave Lee, which was spinning out the double I don't actually do astral work that way. I have actually a pretty easy time doing astral work, kind of leaving my um, body, which is why one of the things I had to do was um, ground my magic into my body. Mm -hmm. I was pretty good at astral work. But that's a technique just to kind of separate yourself from yourself so you can kind of start doing kind of remote viewing and astral work. And then from there, I'm pretty much spent all this time building a place for you to go to um, that is kind of safe and a controlled set of symbols that 
you have built yourself and understand and are comfortable with. Uh, that's done because once you aren't grounded in your body anymore with astral magic stuff, whatever you kind of send out will kind of come into your imagination. So it it doesn't quite, you might get various scenes come in your head that are not related uh, because you're not, you're just kind of wandering around in your mind that can actually hurt you. Usually it doesn't, but if you have that focus where you know exactly what your astral temple looks like, you can go there and then try to do the energy work and then try to do the magic and the banishings and keep increasing your focus so you can imagine yourself doing the things with all five of your senses and then keep going where you don't break yourself out of that space. Hmm. Oh, it's interesting. I mean, it's just something I've always been interested in doing, but it does seem to be a uh, a kind of catch-all warning whenever you approach the subject, which is, yeah, be careful when you do it. <laughs> well, you know, I've known more than a few pretty talented magicians who uh, have gone off the deep end because, well, because they didn't uh, they didn't take to heart what Alistair Crowley and what I put down in numerous places is that all spirits can lie. Hmm. Yeah. And, um, even if they're spirits that you create out of your own mind, like kind of like Donald Trump, they can still lie to you. <laughs> um, and you kind of, it's easy. It's easy when you're out and you're meditating really, really deeply and you're able to do the astral work to kind of get obsessed by it. Hmm. That's really what the warning is. It's like you think that the reality of this is so great because it's, it, you, you feel it in your body. You know, I've, I've gotten to the point in some astral work that it, cause, it can cause a bruise. Now, I'm not, I haven't practiced astral work in a little while, but I was able to cause a bruise in someone else. Uh, and you think, oh, my God, this absolutely is real. This astral stuff is absolutely real. These spirits are absolutely real, and you get in trouble. And that's why the warnings are there. Hmm. Um, because you you take it too much 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 too objectively to kind of have the distance to analyze what the hell is going on here yeah. or come up with alternate explanations for what's going on and that's really the why the warnings there um, I know I know a lot of the new age books will kind of say that it's yeah you just go out of body nothing's going to harm you but that hasn't been my experience. But I have noticed that if you kind of start out with an astral temple and get all those skills down, you 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 can kind of explore freely and you'll be okay. Yeah, excellent. I mean, one thing I guess I was interested in is how did what is your kind of magical story? I guess everyone has their own kind of magical story and how they you know uh, how they got into. Um, magic and uh so how, how did you get into magic and how did you kind of progress to uh you know becoming a member of the I- iot uh, that's right isn't it? oh yeah. yeah this yeah this this is very very interesting because uh i started as a skeptic and gnostic at that i did not believe this stuff my family and my brother particularly was very into uh magic and at the time he started out as a wick he was a, into wicca and when we were in high school and i was just like um this is such bullshit. <laughs> and it was because I didn't like the symbol set and all the books you read are kind of, you know, really kind of go into stuff. And, and I was just kind of, you know, we're in the 21st century and we're going to 
you're doing what? <laughs> you know, being a skeptic, I just was like, okay, I'm just going to go into biochemistry and uh, some hard science and get away from this nonsense. Hmm. Uh, and then a few years later, you know, my life went to shit. It, and I tried to do things which would be considered, from a psychological point of view, rational. Um, tried to talk to my friends, tried to talk to my uh, family. Nothing seemed to work. I got very physically ill. I didn't know kind of where to turn. And I just started thinking, all this, the stuff I'm doing isn't working. It's not working at all. Hmm. So I'm going to try something else that isn't so rational because what I'm doing isn't working. So I picked up some books on magic and um, tried to uh, work with him. And then I kind of gravitated towards kind of uh, Phil Hine at first, not not Peter Carroll's books. Mm. And I kind of saw what Phil Hine was saying, and I kind of said, this kind of agnostic approach you know, makes a lot more sense to me. I'm going to try try this stuff out. Hmm. And I'm going to really throw myself at it because there's no kind of esoteric symbols that I had to memorize or stuff like that. Sigils are relatively easy. Uh, and um, I kind of started out doing blood magic where I was doing every sigil with blood all the time. I don't recommend that all the time for anyone listening because <laughs> I have, the, cut, I have the, the scares to prove it. <laughs> <laughs> And um, kind of progressed through banishing, um, you know, kind of got into the Eastern uh, magics a little um, with Tai Chi and uh, lots of Qigong and Reiki and um, kept going with it. And then eventually, like I said, okay, you know, maybe I need to talk to some other people who are doing this stuff. Because at this point, my life was starting to get better. I was homeless when I started. And at this point, I have a home, and I'm kind of like, I have an apartment, and I'm kind of like, well, I think it's time I started talking to people. Hmm. And as it turns out, like, uh, they were pretty convinced I had a pretty, an aptitude towards this stuff. And so we initially started the kind of uh, Akia, which is was um, Jag D. Hawkins and Anton Chaling, and Anton, I forget his last name, but they started the Kia. And um, we started a Kia working group in Chicago. Hmm. And that went on for like six years. We had a very strong working group that was going on. But then as it happens, <laughs> in a group that has no hierarchy at all, <laughs> one person moves and everything falls apart. Yeah. And so I said, well, that is kind of sucked. And it was kind of like, it wasn't that we parted on bad terms or anything like that. It just kind of was like, well, we had this working group, and losing one person tore the whole thing apart. Mm. So I said, you know, the flip side of this equation is, is really the IoT, uh, you know, which has more structure and has some feedback, so it's not quite as structured as like the OTO. Mm. And I said, okay, well, I will. Uh, I will try to join the IoT to see what happens, and uh, it's been a very rewarding experience. So, because uh, a little bit more structure 
keeps it a little bit more stable, which means you can do th- you can kind of work with similar the same people for longer. Um, and been a member of IoT since. So <laughs> kind of how it came out to be. It was actually, it came about, I joined after my Kia working group fell apart <laughs> because one person moved and it was just not very stable. Where, like I said, an IoT is a little more stable because they have some, some structure. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I noticed on the back of the book, and you talk about it in the, uh, we've spoken about it a bit already tonight, but. Something that I found really fascinating was the uh, Haitian voodoo side of things. How did you get into that? Well, you know, one day I'm sitting on my computer doing my normal Google research on occult matters, which, you know, we've probably all been there if we have a computer and we're into <laughs> occultism. Yeah. And then I came across a Veve that was actually a Papalegba, and... Um, Three hours later, I was like, uh, what just happened here? <laughs> <laughs> and literally, because I just was transfixed by Aveve to that, that point. Um, and I kind of then had some conversations uh, with this entity named Papa Legba, who, who I've come to know very, very well now. Sorry, Papa who? Uh, what? What was, the, what was the name you just said? Papa? Papa Legba. Ah, Papa Legba, that's right, yeah. And I said, uh, dude, uh, who are you? <laughs> like, what, I, what What? do you want with me, you know? And I, he's like, you're supposed to work with us. And I said, okay, well, that's nice. Because uh, remember, I said, spirits can lie, right? Yeah. So I'm like, well, <laughs> that's really nice that I should work with you. And he actually said something to the effect of, give me a task. I'll prove that we can get results just as good as what you're getting or better. Give me something. I said, I want this. And I said, he's like, so if you get this, will you sit down and have a serious conversation with me about, about voodoo? And I said, yeah, yeah, this comes about. Granted, this is all kind of me just kind of communicating with the spirit. Mm. I haven't really done a ritual here. Mm-hmm. You know, after a three-hour point, he said, I said, and there, the, the flip side of this is that it came about in a way that I could not argue with the fact that there was some kind of oddity of coincidence. Mm. So I said, okay, I'm willing to listen. And, and I did. And I kept uh, working with it as a system and keep working with it um, because uh, essentially when I work with it, they they never really they've never lied to me like if i get an impression that they're willing to do something and they're pretty much always willing to do stuff you know they i always get results um and it's interesting because voodoo doesn't have some of the concepts that other religions do where they say you cannot work with any other thing but voodoo voodoo is actually kind of like oh no do what you want Right, you're always aware that you propitiate these spirits, but outside of that, do what you want. It's okay. We're okay with it. Yeah, and no. even then, and even then, it it differs from house to house. When you start doing the Makaya magic, it differs within a house how people do things. I mean, it's almost like chaos sorcery. It's <laughs> it's not quite chaos sorcery, but 
there's a lot of flexibility in voodoo. I mean, when you're doing ceremony like the normal, um, the full ceremony for the public, and most voodoo rituals are for the public. The ones that people see are, are very public, very ceremonial in the in the most pompous sort of way. Uh, that's for the public. It's part ritual theater, part uh, magic, part. Um, tradition, part binding of the community together through those rituals. In private, people tend to do things a little differently with voodoo, but it has a lot more interpretive kind of fun aspects that where you're not just stuck to one way of doing it. Yeah, in some of the source countries of uh, voodoo, isn't it actually considered something you can just drop in on in some some societies? It's like a, uh, it's just as normal as going to church, isn't it? Or, uh, you know, going to... Uh... <laughs> I, don't I, I wouldn't say it's quite going to church. What it's more like, you know what? In, when I was in Haiti, uh, coming from America, where we are very, very quiet about this sort of stuff, mm. was quite a culture shock. Because the first time we did a voodoo dance, people just drove up in their motorcycles and started drinking, watching <laughs> us dance. We were getting possessed and eating fucking, you know, crumpets and shit. It was like. <laughs> Is this, it was like almost like how we go to football games. Hmm. But, uh, you know, people were getting possessed. And it's not just the people who were initiates who were getting possessed. Other people were getting possessed, too. They started dancing and get possessed. It's, it's, there's a whole, it, 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 it's a very different attitude. I mean, like, yeah, people just walk up, you know. There were people from the UN who watched the, the, some of our ceremonies. Because most of the things in voodoo is actually... It seems like it's secret in America because we're in America, but if you go to Haiti, it's really mostly public. Almost everything is not secret. You've actually been out and um, studied with actual practitioners, haven't you? I mean, as in yeah, sort of yeah, traditional I, uh, list, I guess, yeah. practitioners. Yeah, I got initiated, so. <laughs> <laughs> That's all good. That's as traditional as you can get. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, um, what... Obviously, we, I think the most classic example I always think of when I think of voodoo in the media is uh, the James Bond films. It live and let die, I think. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think. I mean, this seems to be one of the big things with voodoo is it's it's kind of its reputation is built almost entirely around the kind of uh, theatrical movie world or you know the uh, the way it's p- portrayed in these kind of these films. I mean, obviously. I mean, in a way, in a way. That comes from a gross misunderstanding of the possession crisis and from the fact that there is, I mean, there is kind of some racism built into Hollywood, hmm. you know, that, that, oh, this ancient world religion could be meaningful and not dark and spooky and evil just because it has very different structures uh, from Christianity hmm. just is part of the problem. Uh, it, it's kind of a false portrayal on purpose, I almost feel like. And actually, there are some people probably who have done a zombie-type thing, but that type of thing is not raising the dead as much as, as, it, as it is a systematic uh, method of brainwashing that um, uses chemicals in the same way that most modern kind of probably spy agencies would do uh, or um, or they at least allude to in some of the conspiracy uh, papers you know where you're using stuff like ketamine but they use actually you know in the serpent and rainbow for instance they use something different they use 
pufferfish drug, which I forget the name of, but it's essentially the same pr- principle that you can break down somebody's ego and implant a new ego, and then in Haiti we call that they call that a zombie. Hmm. The amount of time and effort to do this, I don't think anyone has done it. And it is always, in Haiti, whenever it has been done, it is done as a form of intense punishment because the person did something so heinous that the community turned against them and allowed uh, this to get done. Yeah. Uh, Are and there then, any classic examples the, of that? Or? No, not offhand, I don't. I mean, I mean, I think the last case has been like 200 years ago, where they murdered like, like their, they mur- murdered one of their wives' kids or something that heinous that the mm. community decided uh, that there should be a punishment worse than death, that there should be a punishment, and that's how the the zombie thing is always kind of measured out. You know, from a chaos magical point of view, everything that I've, I didn't, everything I heard when I was in Haiti about this is, is solid psychological methods. It would, it would pretty well work. I mean, there's a lot, that, that's some of the stuff. And um, with zombies, I mean, with puppets, that does actually, that, that is something that does go on there, but it's not, puppets are more New Orleans voodoo than Haitian voodoo. They use something slightly different. Hmm. Uh, but the principles are still there. They still kind of work with the understanding of sympathetic magic and other um, things like that. I mean, they have an understanding. They just kind of do it a little differently than puppets and some of the Hollywood things. And I don't know anyone who can just stick a pin in a poppet and instantly have the person, you know, bend over. <laughs> um, so, you know, you know what I'm saying? I always thought it'd be quite Usually handy. <laughs> Well, yeah, if you get really pissed at somebody, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I, think I, I think I would rather concentrate on, like, love and wealth magic yeah, myself. Yeah. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I mean, certainly you can get effects using those technologies. It's just not quite as sensational as the Hollywood interpretations. Yeah. But then again, you know, uh, you have a real practicing group of magical practices that is real close to the United States and isn't kind of from the 15th century. So it, it it's kind of like, it, it makes the imagination go wild. I think that, Oh wow. Bam. You know, and it's kind of like the charmed effect, you know, charmed is a show here and people just blink and there's all this effects. It's, it's the same kind of sensational yeah, yeah. You know, kind of Harry Potter esque logic that Hollywood uses to kind of sell things. It just, in this case, it makes it look very, very, very dark when uh, voodoo is very, very, very balanced, actually, Hmm. uh, between those extremes of uh, what would be considered, you know, the zombie-esque horror things and much more what would be considered almost in ceremonial magic working with evolutionary, like, uh, forces to kind of improve our lives. Uh, but Voodoo takes the line that all spirits are equally valid. Um, just some are more aggressive, and in some cases, that's what you need. Yeah, I mean, it almost seems that a system like that's more likely to be balanced if it's if it's uh, withstood that much, uh, you know, that 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 period of time. Almost, you'd expect it to have kind of matured as a as an art or as a practice. And uh, yeah, that makes sense actually. 
voodoo is very weird too because it starts to appropriate things very quickly, uh, like the saints. Uh, it, it appropriated and made correspondences between the saints and the Loire, you know, which happens in Santeria as well, and, and or, or Lukami and Ifa. But it, it starts reappropriating uh, things. There's branches in Haiti that I heard about, and uh, after talking to uh, oh David Bath, who's a Gnostic voodoo priest, there's lineages in in Haiti that incorporate much more ceremonial magic and voodoo together. Um, so it kind of voodoo has a tradition of uh, a tradition that uh, as a chaos magician, I understand very well of kind of appropriating and absorbing and taking what they can and make things a little better. Hmm. Oh, and uh, if people want to uh, find you on the web, uh, where would, where would be the best place for them to find you? I have a website. It's uh, www.andreavitimus.com, and that's let's see, it's A N D R I E H V I T I M U S. I'm also on MySpace and Facebook, uh, but my website actually has, um, you know, where to buy the book, uh, various places, and it's got contact information that you can just email me directly all of it and it's going to have probably today once i get done with this a list of the podcasts i've done and some of the appearances that i'm going to be doing in america i hope to get over across the pond to the uk sooner than later and i'm working on that so i hope to get out there Episodes, so keep up with your work, guys. Thanks. Interviews. There's so many movies, so many documentaries, even books that come out that have factual information in it that maybe, you know, this is a gradual way of, of kind of educating the public to as to what's going on. Visit Erie Radio at www.erieradio.com. Space Heroes with me, Daddy Tank. For your ears. My Sea Life by Bab. Gooch by Made Out of Wool. And Uptake Cynical by Yatsuniki the Churimoto.
Ah, a pox on you, Daddy Tank. That hurt my ears. I wish you had warned me of the feedback at the end of that. Anyway, uh, <laughs> that's cool. It's good. I like that drone-tastic episode of uh, My Space Heroes there from uh, the awesome Daddy Tank, who's uh, who we're going to be doing uh, a little project with starting next week. But we'll let you know about that with the next episode. It's going to be quite cool. Um, but thanks a lot to Andrea Vitimus. That was a really cool interview. I really enjoyed doing that one. Actually, um, it's always cool to talk to. Uh, uh, people from the, the other schools of magic, I suppose. We often talk to uh, Lon Molo Duquette and, and uh, it's always good to get other perspectives, which is what this show is all about. So, uh, which is quite good. But I'll be back next week with co-hosts again, because I know it's been two episodes now in a row where it's just been me blabbering on and you're bored of it, I imagine. You want to hear the uh, the dulcet tones of Mortimer again, I imagine. Um, anyway, <laughs> um, I'll just restate the competition one more time. Um, just in case you didn't get it, <laughs> like this is a live show. Um, so yeah, the question is, right where you're sitting now, the name of our site, is uh, based on what I consider to be the best Robert Anton Wilson book, by it if you haven't already got it. Um, he didn't originally use that title. It was used by a friend of his, a famous writer friend of his, uh, who allowed him to use it because he changed the title of his book. There you go, I've given you even more of a clue there. Um, and the actual answer to the question is in an early episode of Sitting Now, within the first five episodes. <laughs> so if you're that desperate for the DVD, go back and listen to like five hours or so of us. Uh, but yeah, cool. So um, we'll be back next week, hopefully with Jim Elvidge, who's the author of The Universe Explained. Um, that's going to be a really interesting episode. It's going to be me and Mortimer interviewing him. Hopefully we'll have Weird Week Weekly News back again next week. Uh, check out the site at sittingnow.co.uk. Um, uh, check us out on iTunes of course and subscribe if you're just listening to this on the fly uh, we, you know, we're trying to get these shows out as much as possible at the moment we've got great guests coming up with some awesome awesome episodes I'm just going to pre-warn you guys now if you think we've had some great episodes so far get ready we've, we've got some great great episodes planned so uh, particularly in the next couple of episodes that's going to be a bit of a heads up there um, we've also got some great stuff coming up on the site as well we've got great content on there now we've got regular writers Bruce Fenton one of our early guests has uh, that's a great article it's quite funny as well it's great um, and yeah we've got other projects coming up uh, which I can't talk about all of them uh, one of them's one of them I can talk about uh, is a project I'm doing with Daddy Tank which starts this weekend so uh, it's all going to be good uh, if you haven't had enough of us anyway but uh, <laughs> I'll see you next week uh, episode 25 with Jim Elvidge and Mortimer I hope so uh, see you then and uh, enjoy your week see you later